From stretch marks to self-love, Talking Out Loud explores it all. Tune in to season two for real, raw relationship stories and advice. I'm your host, Danae Mercer, and I'm happy you're here. Welcome back, guys. Joining me this week, we have Dr. Alexandra Solomon, professor and psychologist at Northwestern University and best-selling author of Loving Bravely and Taking Sexy Back. Dr. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Danae, for having me. Now, I am fascinated by both of your books and also by your Instagram feed, which just comes with some really powerful relationship whoppers. Season two of our podcast is all about relationships, and I know Taking Sexy Back is about women doing essentially that. So why don't you start, give us a quick synopsis of the book, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in with some sexy questions. Okay. So, you know, my, um, my first book was all about the self in love, like what we need to know and understand about ourselves and our story in order to be strong, aware, curious, and resilient for our intimate relationships. But even as I was writing that book, it was like I had my second book like bubbling in the background because I was aware that to talk, to try to tackle love and sex in the same book was entirely too much. And certainly sex comes up in the first book, but I knew pretty soon that I, pretty quickly after the first book came out, that I really wanted to devote um, a serious look at women and sexuality because we are so bombarded with messages from a very, very early age about everything that has to do with our physicality and our sexuality, right? Because those are completely entwined. Our sexuality is embodied. It's more than just our bodies. It's our hearts and our minds and our souls, but it's also something, you know, sex is something we transact through our bodies. And I, I just have had so many conversations with women over the years between my undergraduate students, my graduate students, my therapy clients, my friends, myself. And so that's the second book was really looking at this question of, um, you know, the title sort of taking sexy back is this, you know, sexy is something that I feel like many women um, view as a question, right? Somebody else gets to determine whether or not we are sexy. And so in this book, what we do is we make sexy into a noun and we capitalize it. So my sexy is my relationship with my sexuality. My sexy is my sexuality, my relationship with the erotic. And so the book is really a journey for a woman to take into herself to understand what the heck is going on in my relationship with my sexuality. See, I think that's so incredibly powerful because so many women, like we are taught from a young age that it feels like we are the the submissive one, right? Like our desire doesn't matter. It's more about pleasing the guy, like being everything for the other person. And as someone who is only recently kind of exploring her own sensuality, it's, it's, fascinating all the things we are and aren't taught. So what would you say to a woman who looks in the mirror or looks at it, like feels in her skin, feels in herself, not sexy? Mm-hmm. I would, I would want her to start um, by questioning, like, you know, who gets to be sexy and what does one have to do to be sexy? Because if we, what we, what I'm so passionate about doing is helping us construct a, a sort of inside out experience of sexy, right? So that it's, it's not determined by how our body looks or the sounds we make during sex or like the moves that we bring into the bedroom. Sexy is something that we, that we cultivate from the inside out. It's about our relationship to our own um, senses, right? How to, the degree to which we feel entitled to pleasure, 
to exploration, to sensation. And many women don't feel exactly as you're saying, many women feel so much like sex is either a performance or a duty that it's quite radical just to say, actually, sex is something that I do for me. Like my partner gets to be there, but really it's about my own, my own um, gateway to feeling alive, feeling pleasure, and that my pleasure actually gets to be center. And how, how does a woman start to communicate that either with herself or with her partner? I think that the, I do think that communicating it to herself needs to come first because I hear so many, I have so many couples and, you know, often this is, this is straight couples. I think that for um, queer couples, especially queer female couples, you know, there's something about breaking free of this like heavy heterosexual script that sometimes women who are queer, I mean, they, they of course have all kinds of Issues regarding, you know, body image and trauma that are, that would be the same no matter one sexuality. But I think there can be, it can be there can be a bit of liberation around being able to feel a bit more entitled. So for a, a straight gal, especially, I really want her journey to start with herself. And it may be like the first thing may be really questioning like her relationship with masturbation. Is that something she has ever allowed herself? What are the stories she's internalized about masturbation? Like, is she allowed to even? understand her own body because if she can't understand her own body, how can she possibly advocate, right? So I've had so many women who are like, my male partner is like, tell me what you want. And I'm like, I'm not holding out on him. I just really actually don't even know what to say, what to ask for. I don't know what feels good. So that's where we have to start. It's really interesting to hear you say that because I I went to high school somewhere that was it was abstinence only education and I was raised with this belief that intimacy only happens in marriage which is a, a perfectly valid belief for certain individuals but it's not my path and uh, it left me with a lot of complex feelings and a lot of ignorance so what would you do there was a video on the internet today actually of a, of a teenage boy talking about how he loves choking and spitting on a woman during intimacy. Like what would you do if a woman doesn't know how to stand up for herself with her partner? That's like, right. What, what, what does she do? <sighs> yeah. I mean, you know, this is why like we don't, we don't even have the luxury anymore of abstinence only education, right? It, it may be, maybe there was a time and a place where that was, a viable message to give people, although I'd have to maybe even be argued into that point. But we have no, we just, we don't have time for it because of exactly what you're saying. Like we have, you know, the average age at which um, teens are seeing pornography is like, you know, 13, four. So very often people have exposure, not just to sort of like some, um, you know, soft core porn, but like hardcore porn where, where teens are seeing things like um, choking and spitting. So that becomes, it is not because, you know, because teens or boys or male sexuality is, some, is how like somehow like inherently perverse or aggressive. It's because that's what's normalized in mainstream pornography. Um, and so we need to just, I think parents, teachers, schools need to deal with the fact that this is what teens are seeing. And so we have to have counter messages. And I would never, ever, ever shame somebody for their interest in more extreme sexual behaviors, right? The kink community, I have so much to learn from the BDSM community. Like there are communities that intentionally play with power, play with the intersection of pleasure and pain. Like that's an entire area you can dive into, but it's not, it's not where you can start. It's not where one starts. And so I 
like I feel really concerned when I hear stories that are just kind of normalizing things like choking and spitting rather than having those be something that a couple may slowly evolve into from a deep foundation of care and trust and mutuality and understanding of why, when, and how we're going to like expand into some more, you know, edgy kinds of things. So I think we need to just like wipe the slate clean and be able to talk um, in really straight and clear terms about about sex and about the impact of pornography. Like we don't have to be anti-porn in order to say that porn is not the best way to learn about sex, at least not mainstream porn. There's some beautiful feminist porn, right? Where there's inclusivity around bodies and like, you know, what's being modeled is like healthy communication and contraception and, you know, but that's not when you open Pornhub, that's not what, where Pornhub takes you. Absolutely. And I, I 100% agree with you. We've, we've got a Facebook group of it's over 25,000 women and one of the reoccurring themes is converse, their conversations around porn and also not feeling that you are allowed to have a voice in the bedroom or that your voice isn't right. So if if a woman wanted to start that conversation, how like how do you do it? Do you schedule a time and pour some tea or do you do it when you're I don't know cuddling? Is there a way to do this safely? Right. I think it's such, it's a it's a really wonderful question because it's such a common question. We spend some time in the Taking Sexy Back book on this very question of how and when to talk about it. I love the idea of a couple using something like a podcast episode or a book, like to have something to kind of respond to together because it can be difficult to just sort of stare into each other's eyes and say things like, you know, I would love some more cunnilingus. Like that's you know, pretty next level, right? <laughs> like that. So I do think we have to um, find ways to ease into the conversation. I think being responsive to something, like you know, watching something together and being like, "What did you like about that?" or what, you know, "What what turned you on about that?" Um, I love, you know, there are couples who will sometimes open email accounts that are just purely to sort of send messages back and forth to each other to kind of type out the things that maybe feel a bit vulnerable to say out loud. Um, and, um, and it just doesn't have to be words. So there can be, I think there are times when a couple will say like, you know, use my hands, use my body, like show me what feels good. Um, and I think especially if what we're talking about is a heterosexual couple where they've got, where there's an, or, you know, the, the science has shown us over and over again that with straight couples, there's very often an orgasm gap. The likelihood that he will have an orgasm is far greater than that she will have an orgasm. So the way we sort of disrupt that orgasm gap or fill the orgasm gap is by him becoming a student of hers, like him taking a really humble, um, like holding space, like basically holding a space where he says, like, I want to learn and I will go slowly. And that requires him to drop his defensiveness because very often, you know, men come into the bedroom with ideas that they should, you know, if we, if we're saying that women are taught to be submissive, that means that men feel like they're taught to be leaders. Right. And so he may have this idea that he has to be in charge and he has to know how to make her come. And if he doesn't know, then something's wrong with him. So nobody can talk about the fact that she actually isn't coming. So, So there's part of this work is him shedding those narratives that say that he ought to be in charge, that he shouldn't ask questions, that he shouldn't be confused and, and him being able to say like, I don't, I don't have this all figured out either. And I actually internalize some pretty 
gnarly and unhelpful messages too. So I want to relearn, you know, and I want to learn with you something that is different, something that is more affirming and more joyful and more relaxed. I think that men feel tremendous pressure in the bedroom to be in charge, to get hard, to stay hard, you know, all of this kind of stuff that men bring in as well that that just, again, blocks intimacy. And I think women oftentimes don't even know that men are having their own stressors and struggles because men are taught very early to just put on a mask and act like everything's okay, you know? My gosh, how powerful and incredible would it be if we were taught to have these dialogues at a very, you know, at a younger age, rather than, I mean, I'm in my 30s now and and still very much learning all this stuff. It's it's so powerful and it makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. I, I know in your book, you include some really practical steps for finding or taking your sexy. So things like writing um, sensual short stories. What would be, if you were to share like your one favorite practical step that a woman could take to like take her sexy back, what would it be? Mm. (laughs) You know, it's very painful to ask somebody who loves complicated answers to say one thing, but I will do it. Here's my one thing. The one, (laughs) the one thing would be to Learn how to bring mindfulness into the bedroom. Okay, so what what does that mean? Okay, so we know so mindfulness is has become so popular, right? Like this is it's in every like mental health conference. There's apps that are devoted to mindfulness. So mindfulness is the idea of bringing our attention to the present moment and like dropping the story, right? So not fast forwarding into like, oh my god, what's going to happen next not rewinding into like, I shouldn't have and why did I? And, um, but just being in the present moment, right? Focusing on our five senses. That's what we do when we meditate. It's what we oftentimes do in yoga. The woman who wrote the foreword to Taking Sexy Back, her name is Dr. Lori Brado, and she's a um, sexuality researcher based in Canada. And she found that, so, so just about half of, of all women struggle with low sexual desire. This is an incredibly common problem. And I think it's you know, informed by a number of factors. But the way that she wanted to tackle this this epidemic of women's low sexual desire was she thought, what if I taught women mindfulness? So she brought women into the lab, taught them mindfulness skills, how to be present in the bedroom. So to be mindful in the bedroom means when a thought comes up about, oh my gosh, what are my thighs doing right now? Or how does my stomach look right now? Or how do my breasts look right now? You notice that the thought is coming up and you drop the thought and you just return to sensation. When you start to get distracted by, I wonder if he thinks this is taking too long, or I should get to sleep because I have a big meeting in the morning. You notice the thought and you come back to the moment. When she taught women mindfulness, they had increased sexual desire, increased lubrication, increased arousal, more orgasms. It was easier to talk about sex with their partner. Like It was pretty miraculous, the shift that happened as women became aware of all of the chatter that comes with us into the bedroom and which compromises our ability to feel entitled, relaxed, and then um, full of pleasure, right? This is incredible. So what you're saying is there are even more benefits to learning how to meditate, right? (laughs) That's right. As if we couldn't, right? As if we were not already convinced. Here's another reason. So on the note of pleasure and, and everything with COVID, so many of us are suddenly like living with our partners 24-7. We are stuck in the house. We're always together. And I know for many women in my community, 
intimacy has become a growing problem because it's really hard to feel sexy if you're just in your sweatpants every day and so is your, you know, your beloved. How do, <laughs> what advice would you have for couples navigating the weird world we're in right now? Well, the first thing I would do is val- validate it. It is, I think it's a legitimate um it's a really legitimate concern. And it, and it is, I hear, you know, it's, it's all the factors you're naming about sort of this, like always, always, always together. Um, the kind of casualness of like living in our <laughs> leisure wear, that's part of it. It also is stress, you know, for, for some people, stress is an aphrodisiac and it spikes desire because people are like, oh my God, give me some sex and like help me escape, you know, the, the pain of reality. But for more people, stress functions as um, a desire killer. It really blocks desire. I recently heard the head of the Kinsey Institute um, say that, you know, two antelopes will not have sex in front of a lion, right? Sort of capturing this idea of like when there's threat, when there's danger, like things like reproduction, things like sex, you know, kind of fall to the wayside because there's a more basic need, which is just to stay alive. And that is the nature of, of, of being alive during COVID is that there is this forever fear around health, around wellness, around life and death. And if it's, we're not worried about our own life and death, we're worried about our parents and our loved ones, you know, so there's just, so all of this, I think that we really underestimate um, the grind, you know, of, of living in a time like this and how much it comes, how much it, it, it compromises our libido. So by normalizing that, what I want to do is prevent couples from taking it personally, because that's oftentimes what happens, right? Is if we aren't making love as frequently as we did, or if somebody seems more distracted during sex, we're at risk of taking it personally and sort of catastrophizing and saying like, oh my God, what's wrong with us? Like we're together all the time. We can't even enjoy each other or what's wrong with, you know, what's wrong with you or what's wrong with me? So we can, we can add a layer of story about about, you know, sort of a shift in our sex lives that can make the problem worse because now we're bummed we aren't having sex and we're also scared that we're doomed and we're going to break up and all, you know, we end up in these horrifying, very scary places. So I really want to normalize and validate it. And um, in terms of practical things, I do think that it, it seems so silly, but just changing it up. So there may be some very practical things that couples can do about Like you can't change, there's some variables you can't change, like having a night on the town or having hotel sex, but what are the variables you can change? Like, can you, you know, change up the music, add some music, change up the candles, be in a different part of the house? Could you get dressed up and have a fancy dinner just at home? Like, how can you play with some of the context to make it feel different? I also think just, there's something about setting an intention. So you know, couples can kind of go either way on this idea of scheduling sex. But there are couples for whom if they say, come hell or high water, you know, 11 o'clock tonight, like it's on, (laughs) that can be fun. It can add a playful atmosphere. Everyone's a bit more on their best behavior. You know, people are, there might be a little bit of more flirtation, like setting an intention and saying, it does not matter that we are exhausted and sort of mildly depressed here. We are going to bust through and have some fun together and we deserve it. So I think setting, like saying, you know, scheduling sex, like it does not have to be unromantic or lame, it can be like, we matter so much to each other. And this matters so much that we are going to put it on the table, schedule it and hold that time. I love that you 
you present it in this really powerful way of we matter so much to each other, we're going to make this work. Because you're right, it often is the thing that gets pushed aside or feels, you know, there's so much pressure around it or it's not. So it's, that's a really beautiful, proactive step. One of another, like another really reoccurring theme that I, I get asked about from community members is say a woman is in a relationship with someone and her partner talks about her body in a really bad way or talks about her, I don't know, skills in the bedroom in a bad way, or basically does a lot of things that kind of leave her at the end of the day, not feeling very good about herself, but not sure if it's just in her head or if, if there is an issue, how do you know if you're in an unhealthy relationship, a relationship that's kind of dimming the fire of your potential sexy or what advice would you have? I'm first of all I'm so cu- I, well, I, well I would love to like rewind I know we're, we're um being mindful of time I'm I'm so curious sort of your thoughts about um keeping you know erotic life alive during this pandemic so I'm so like part of my brain is still back there thinking okay Janae like what are you hearing what are you finding um <laughs> struggling that's what that's what I'm finding is everyone across the board it, it's it's a lot of struggles and it's a lot of women finding out for the first time that their partners watch porn or they watch porn to the extent that they do a lot of women struggling with oh does that mean they actually don't love me as much as I thought they did a lot of women just struggling with their skin it's 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 hard I think for so many women right now it's hard yep Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, I um, I certainly think that there can be situations where where men um, have problematic relations, relationships with porn. One point that I try to get across to women is to is to to the degree they can just to be curious about his relationship with porn because as you peel back the layers, what you may find is that he's been using porn since long, long, long before you were a part of the world, and it may have been his primary and only source of self soothing when he was very young and when he. He was left alone with really overwhelming feelings. I find that a lot with men that they were that porn was like the only place they knew to escape and the only way they know how to manage their anxiety. And so it may have absolutely nothing to do with her, which doesn't mean it doesn't hurt her and she may have all kinds of feelings about it. But to just hold on to the possibility that this is something that's about his relationship with himself and um, and says little to nothing about her, and that that at least can be a different way to enter the conversation because it's she's less. Um, feeling raw and and vulnerable, and he's feeling less defensive. You know what I mean. And he may be it may be a bit safer for him to be vulnerable in that conversation if she can kind of hold on to the possibility that actually maybe this doesn't really have anything to do with his love or his desire for her. That's actually I'm so glad you said that because one of our Facebook group it's very supportive and it is the most incredible and beautiful and safe space, but. Twice now we have had threads on porn that have just deteriorated into very hurt feelings and mm-hmm. a lot of frustration from different women with different opinions. And it all kind of boils down to that feeling of like, oh, well, does he does he think I'm not good enough? So right. I'm so right, glad right, you, right. you shared that with me. That's that's beautiful. Yeah. Well, of course your Facebook group would struggle with porn because like the, the people who study porn, like when I go to mental health conferences and I go to workshops about 
porn and porn addiction, there is massive debate debate within my field, like among the scientists who study it, it is highly controversial and there's not a shared consensus and there's very, very strong feelings. So if the experts can't figure it out, of course, um, all of, you know, consumers can't figure it out. Lay people can't figure it out. So I just want to validate that, that it is a very hard, messy situation. And we're living in a time when the, you know, porn industry doesn't look the way that it did, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So it's, it's very complicated. Um, in terms of your, so the question about, you know, I find myself reactive a bit to this question, um, about a partner who's critical of somebody's body because I, um, you know, especially if it is a man who's being critical of a woman's body, um, I want him, it's, it's why I've been so touched about the stories I've heard when men pick up taking sexy back and read it, because I think it's vitally important if a man is going to love a woman, it is really important for him to understand that her growing up experience and her relationship with her body is wholly different than his ever was, right? We, there are entire economies that rest upon selling women bodily insecurity, right? If we all decided to just be comfortable in our own skin, there are entire parts of the economy that would just collapse, right? So that, so then because she's always viewing her own body as this like forever um, fixer-upper project, his, to, for him to give her those messages as well, it's just so painful. Like I want a male partner to be a cheerleader and uh, um, in like the wind beneath her wings rather than like the wind at her face because she does not need any more wind at her face. She's got her own voice. She's got, you know, every um, message she's ever been told. All of that's already in her head. So for her to have his voice also in her head, that is just a bridge too far and it's going to compromise their sex life for sure. My gosh, I wish we had more time. I can't believe... We have only really, really spoken about some of the knowledge that you share in Taking Sexy Back, and we haven't even really touched on how we figure out to love ourselves. So maybe one day we could get you back on. But for now, Dr. Alexandra, where can people find you? The best place is my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, and um, that has links to my social media. But as you mentioned, I'm quite active on Instagram, which is dr.alexandra.solomon. Perfect. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us today. That was such an incredible interview. And guys, make sure you click subscribe. There will be another episode uploading next week. Thanks for joining. Bye.